You're listening to KDNK's Public Affairs Program for Land's Sake. I'm your host, Bill Kite, and today our guest is Eileen Kemp of the DHM Design Company. And uh, we'll get her connected here in just a second. Are you there, Eileen? Hi, I'm here. <laughs> okay, good. We have a new system here, and uh, I'm trying to learn it, so uh, make sure that you're on. So it's so good to have you with us today, and uh, really appreciate you being uh, being the person that we want to talk to about landscapes today. First question I want to ask you is, what in your life prepared you to become involved in designing landscapes? Yeah, well, when I was a child, uh, I maximized my time outdoors. I've always had a passion for nature, exploring, recreation. Growing up, our parents are really good at encouraging us participate in summer camps, which often included you know, nature walks, camping, trekking through the woods, you name it. Often some form of a scavenger hunt for salamanders or frogs along the creek. Um, but we were always a group of kids that were playing and exploring from sunrise to sunset, making and creating obstacles and games, um, using the materials that we found along the way and building things with our hands. So the passion for the outdoors and creativity um, has always been with me. And I'd say the pivotal point that triggered exploring landscape architecture was a combination of that childhood as well as an art history class that I took uh, early on in college. And we studied the art um, from across the world, from ancient to the present, and it really inspired me. Uh, looking at art history, uh, which covers virtually every aspect of human history and experience. You know, you analyze the composition, the painting, the lighting, very similar aspects that you do as a, as a landscape architect. And as you peel away those layers of the art, just like in the, in the landscape, you start to experience that place. Um, and the experience is the art are very similar to that of landscape architecture. So that's what it for me. It's funny. I took a art history class too, and and myself and the other person that wasn't an artist were the only two people that passed the course. <laughs> so <laughs> I uh, I don't know if it's if tomboy is still a word, but I I guess you you would probably be classified maybe as a tomboy when you were that age you were talking about. Oh, absolutely on all levels. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You know, when uh, when I was an archaeologist back another century, uh, most of my career I dealt with landscapes and, and how humans deal with land. Um, and I always think of landscape as landscape because it's the cultural landscape is put on top of the natural one. And could you talk a little bit about the, the art and science required to blend that created landscape and cultural landscape into the natural, you know, together? Yeah. DHM has worked on a wide spectrum of projects uh, within the public and private sectors. We're very often that blend that cultural and natural resource. Um, the cultural landscapes are historic, historically significant places that show evidence of human interaction with the physical environment. So their authenticity is measured by uh, historical integrity or the presence and condition of physical characteristics that remain from that historic period. The components of parks 
agricultural landscapes include human-modified ecosystems such as forests, prairies, rivers, and shores, um, as well as constructed works such as mounds and terraces, structures and gardens. A lot of research and planting and stewardship activities are organized around these resources. And then there's five cultural resource areas of the Natural Park Service that are inclusive of cultural landscapes, historic structures, archaeology, museum collections, and the ethnographic resources. And each of these are applicable to other agencies. It's not just the National Park Service and other lands as well. So right. This information and research helps to understand the period of significance, which then informs the goals and intentions for how to manage the natural landscape. Um, so what are the contributing landscape characteristics? And now we're blending the created or cultural landscape into the natural landscape. Right, and there tends to be a tension between sometimes the natural landscape and, and the cultural landscape, doesn't there? Your, your job is to try to not have that tension, isn't it? Mm-hmm, well, that's exactly right. So we try to uh, provide as light on the land solutions as possible to respect that the natural systems, spatial organization and topography, for example. So you've worked in national parks, and, and uh, on your website it says that about half of your work, for or at least half of DHM designs work, is is in the public sector. So if you could, uh, you know, those of us who really love our public lands, and I think <laughs> I hope I'm talking to most of our listeners, we'd like to hear about mm-hmm. the work you do with the Park Service and and helping, especially preserve our nation's treasures. Yeah, so DHM has had the opportunity to work on national parks and other agencies for, oh, 35 years. Um, and what's interesting, there's we're landscape architects, we have natural resource services, but there's a very important component in there that is sometimes overlooked for these complex projects, and that's project management. Right. Um, so we are tasked to manage very large, multidisciplinary teams that reach across the country. And you have to be able to pull from those subject matter experts to respond to very unique uh, preservation projects, whether that's a historic turntable, seawalls, projects well that are beyond just um, landscape architecture and natural resource services, as well as what we manage with the with the Park Service. In terms of preservation, a lot of those components that you have to be mindful of are constructability. You're often in very remote areas, or you could be in a very high traffic urban site. Right. Um, We're often tasked to figure out solutions that have very short construction seasons. So does that mean some components need to be built, dismantled on off-site, and then rebuilt on-site. So there's a lot of project management components that go into all the projects that we work on for preserving our nation's treasures that um, might not get talked about as often as you know, we hone in on um, the natural beauty and the improving the visitor experience, which is just as important. It's just what's the behind-the-scenes to get 
get to to what the visitors get to experience on a daily basis. Those are some of the fun dynamics we get to work with. And you want you want the visitor to have a quality experience too, and, and not intrude upon that experience with the, the cultural landscape, don't you? Uh, yes, absolutely. We want it to be a memorable experience uh, for the visitor, and and each unit, each park is, is is very different. Whether you're going to a battlefield, a campground, a memorial. Um, the experiences and the spaces that you're visiting are, are quite drastically different and the, and the experiences that you take away with uh, are different as well. Yeah, for, for most people that, you know, at least our, our culture considers battlefields a sacred space. Um, and so do a lot of the sites I'm sure you work with when you work with Native groups. I um, you mentioned project management. I, I remember uh, I've been a project manager for a few projects in, in my lifetime, and I remember trying to learn Microsoft Project Manager, and that, that was something I really did not like, just trying to keep track of all the different projects and you know, all the different people working and what you're doing and the timeline and everything. So that's when you said project management, I want people to know that's not an easy thing to do. Um <laughs> You're listening to KDNK's Public Affairs Program for Land's Sake. Today, our guest is Eileen Kemp. Uh, tell us about something that's that's dear to my heart, and that's working in the Park Service and tribal representatives and at the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site. Um, you know, the, the trauma that happened there is still present in the, the living uh, descendants of those ancestors that that were murdered there, which is exactly what what happened. And I I saw the structure that was put there that I'm sure you had a a part in and was very impressed Mm -hmm. about how it fit into that natural landscape uh, like it did. Could you kind of give us a a real good in-depth feeling of what it was like working on that project and and, uh, what you accomplished? Yeah. So the, the Sand Creek Massacre... National Historic Site was authorized by Congress in November of 2000. And the authorizing legislation requires the Secretary of Interior and the National Park Service to protect and preserve the site, including the topographic features, artifacts, and other physical remains, the cultural landscape, interpret the natural and cultural resource values of the site, provide public understanding of and preserve for future generations uh, of those values. Since the day the event took place, the Sand Creek Massacre has maintained its significance as one of the most emotionally charged and controversial events in U.S. history. For sure. Um, The National Park Service developed a general management plan to establish comprehensive vision for the site's purpose, significance and resource goals and then feedback was solicited from federal state uh, local tribal officials tribal members and the public and some of those management and um, site issues that were brought up during that outreach included starting to think about what is the appropriate level of development at the site what is the appropriate level of 
visitor access? Um, and then how can the Park Service best provide tribal access for traditional, cultural, and uh, historical observances? So a lot of those tough questions were asked and, and feedback was provided. Um, DHM then used that documentation of that process to inform what the vision be for Monument Hill and that's that structure that you speak of. Uh -huh. um, Monument Hill is a very sacred place for reflection and ceremony. So we, we try to do as light of a land improvements as as feasible to accommodate uh, some of the improvements, which included integrating universal access um, as tribal communities have, are multi-generational. They wanted to be mindful of, of all ages being able to access the monument. Right. Um, seating was incorporated for resting, um, walking up the, up the hill, and once you reached the monument, and then we had uh, interpretive panels along the way to, help to communicate the events that took place. And then the shade structure up top was specifically asked for um, for individuals that might spend some time up there. As you can see in photos, it's quite exposed. There isn't tree cover for shade. So they wanted something as delicate and light as possible. We, we did shade and sun studies, um, stepped back and looked at the horizon line to see what uh, materials and shapes and forms could be uh, provided just to accommodate shade with as, as light of a visual effect as possible. So the structure is made of, of round beams or poles. Um, and it's pretty light on the land approach. When you talk about visitor access, you weren't just trying to accommodate uh, ADA, American um, Disabilities Act. You were also trying to accommodate the sensitivity of, of the older elders in the tribe who who want to get there to that spot. Um, how, how in working there, how long were you there at that site uh, working on, on it? How long did, uh, did you work on it? Yeah, that's exactly right. We were trying to accommodate um, an ease of access to the area for the elders. And, oh, it was a, it was a clear effort from design to construction. So a year. Wow. Um, what, how, when you spent time there, what, what feelings did, were evoked for you? Was it, uh, I'm sure there was some reverence you had in, in that special place. But if you could, tell us a little bit about how, how you were affected by it. Yeah, I guess it, it's hard to put into words without, um, you know, individuals being able to experience it for themselves. But sure, it it really makes you to pause, um, and you can see how it, it exposed and silent the day might have been, and uh, and then you and then you remind yourself of. You know the sacred place and um, sense of community that individuals have had to to keep this site intact uh, and preservation and preserve it for future generations. 
uh, to come and reflect on those moments. It's kind of a mixed um, emotions when you're there. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure it, it is. I, I've not been there yet, but I. I definitely. I want to go there with my wife, who's a member of the Rapo Nation, and. Um, okay. So yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that, but I'm also apprehensive a bit, uh, because yeah. when I when I was working with uh, tribes before, I had the question, you know, proposed to me. Well, what's sacred to you? You know, and trying to trying to bridge that gap between what I consider sacred and what, what the tribal members would consider sacred. Um, so, well, yeah, think, go ahead. Yeah. For, for me, it's, it's um, it like a burial ground, cemetery, and it, um, it's a very sacred place, very sacred land to respect. And I think the Park Service, it's, it's in a fairly remote area in the sense that it's it's not on beaten paths or near an inter- interstate highway. And how many visitors came to it while you were working at the site? Were, were a lot of people that came there? Uh, what was what were the visitors like? The times that we were there, um, there was, it seemed like more individuals were coming um, to visit the site, maybe one family. There wasn't high visitation when I was there, um, but that comes uh, and varies throughout the year. Just like you mentioned, it's, it's a very remote location to get to, so it's more of a destination. Right. I know the tribes have a they have a run there. They call the healing run from um, the site to actual to Denver because that's when um, some of the tokens and some of the what you would call these people taking as souvenirs that the soldiers that uh, committed the massacre and so they mm-hmm. they run that in the, in uh, around Thanksgiving every year I don't know during the during covid if it was done or not but that's something that I I uh, I think my wife would definitely like to be involved in and and like I'd like to uh, be there when that happens um I'm sure there are many other places you know and projects that you're currently working on so if you could share with us uh, some of those I'd, I'd appreciate it uh, sure uh, Coulter Bay developed area that's in uh, the Grand Teton that's the project that we're working on it's a comprehensive planning project oh, approximately a thousand acres um, and Coulter Bay are you familiar with where that is right yeah i've been uh, been to the uh, grand tetons there and all the way up into yellowstone and you know like like mm-hmm. a lot of tourists i i was playing tourist when i was there looking at all the the different places and how how they affected the landscape for sure so yeah tell us yeah. a little bit more about that sure so colter bay is just on the northeastern shore of jackson lake um, it happens to be one of the most visited areas in the Teton National Park. Um, they welcome over oh, 10,000 visitors a day. And they also have a very large uh, overnight accommodation area, uh, which services the visitors and staff, concessionaire park staff. So this area was developed oh, in the 60s, and um, like many other parks around the country that haven't seen significant improvements. This one, it, it, it's time to look at the facilities and they're becoming outdated and need some improvement for 
for modern standards, um, accessibility for modern vehicles, um, and to just service the increase in demand that we're starting to see or have already been seeing across the country. That's been a really interesting project to take a look at. Uh, we are involved with the from landscape architecture services and our natural resource services, which is great to collaborate on that one together. Uh, Statue of Liberty, we work on projects across the country. Right. Uh, back east at Statue of Liberty, we have several uh, preservation projects that are underway. Uh, one of those is this star-shaped fort wood underneath Statue of Liberty that is just about wrapped up and we're doing um, some restoration work and rehabilitating a stone wall around the base. And then another one that just wrapped up a few months ago is on the terraplane, which is just a flat surface there. They're going to be repaving all of that. Um, what are some local ones? Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, Several years ago, the East Troublesome Fire um, reached into the park. It was in, what, October 2020. So we are working with them to redo the entrance station on the Grand Lake side. And it was um, pretty unimaginable to go there and see the destruction from the fire. There was just little remnants of concrete and twisted metal. There's you only know at the entrance station because the booth was still there across from it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, uh, um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just say a couple others that Rocky Mountain would be staff housing. And then they also lost their barn and tax shed, which was a, a critical structure for the Colorado River District um, that served essential roles for both the trails and packing programs on that west side. I didn't realize they'd lost uh, structures like that. I was on a fire when I worked with the Forest Service on, in the park, uh, but it wasn't nearly as destructive as, as that one. That, that I, I didn't know it was it was that that bad. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, so they've had to redo quite a bit of structure, and they it's another a great example of a very short window for construction. For sure, yeah. Um, what what other Things can you tell us about DHM? You have offices. Tell us a little bit about where your offices are located. Uh, yeah, so we have our office, main office here in Denver. We have an office there in Carbondale, um, Durango, and then we have two satellite offices in Montana, and Bozeman and Missoula. I like both of those towns. Uh, Bozeman uh, is... Uh, <laughs> In Missoula, both I've I've enjoyed being there when I've traveled to those places. Um, in the time we have left, if you could leave us with uh, our listeners, um, what you would like to leave with them, and tell us a little bit about your experience. About it's always hard for me to describe what sense of place is, but in the, in the few minutes we have left, to tell us what you'd like for people to know about your work or about landscapes. Oh, sure. Well, I think it's, for me personally, it's, it's been an honor to have the opportunity to work 
um, particularly with the National Park Service, Forest Service, and our, our federal agencies. Uh, DHM as a whole works on private and public um, projects, uh, which we are all very passionate about as well. Um, and in terms of, we have a really unique opportunity to be stewards of the land and responsible stewards of the land in our profession, which is very unique. Uh, and we take um, very much care and passion to the projects that we're working on, such that we are creating um, a sense of place for that specific area and it's contextually appropriate. Um, and another way of looking at it is kind of the timeless landscape. So we are here for just a very short sense of time, so thinking about the users today, but also for future generations. And that's for private, private and public um, projects that we work on. So I would just say encourage folks to continue to explore the, the outdoors, and whether that's through Whatever your passions are, gardening, farming, hiking, camping, there's always something to learn from nature, and um, it can be very grounding and timeless. And I think that gets transcended into um, our professions as landscape architects and natural resource stewards of the land. It's, the land is important, isn't it? That's the whole reason for this show, actually, is, uh, you know, for land's sake and leaving a light footprint uh, well, you're also constructing uh, the cultural landscape, basically, is what, what you're doing. Um, and mm-hmm. the historic properties are, are interesting to me since that's what I deal with now as a museum director is historic properties. Um, name a couple of historic properties you worked on that you really liked. Uh, well, I'm currently working on um, a project at Gettysburg. Oh, cool. A little round. Yeah, that one's been uh, a pretty exciting project to work on, and it's focused on a visitor improvement project where a highly visited node in that that park that needed more space for, and, and most importantly, to preserve the land for future generations. That's important. Well, we've got to leave you now. Thank you, Eileen, for being with us today. Yeah. Thank you.